Welcome to 29th Floor Sunday School. This is a podcast intended to supplement your weekly study of the Come Follow Me curriculum published by the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I'm host Ben James, and every week I lead you through the lessons in a way that is intended to help you better understand the scriptures, make you think about important questions, and strengthen your faith in Jesus Christ. You can also find the video version of these lessons on my YouTube channel, titled 29th Floor Sunday School. If you find these lessons useful, please consider becoming a subscriber. Enjoy the lesson. Hello, welcome to 29th Floor Sunday School. Glad you can join me today from Central Hong Kong as we study the Come Follow Me curriculum for December 2nd through 8th. And today we'll be learning from the three epistles written by John as well as the epistle of Jude. Uh, I'll start by giving a quick update uh, on Hong Kong. A number of you in comments uh, express uh, interest in Hong Kong, uh, for which I am grateful. It is uh, very interesting to to live in such a a vibrant city and one that's uh, gotten a lot of uh, notoriety lately. Uh, You may have heard last week we had uh, district council elections, and so what that means is uh, it's kind of like everyone chooses their uh, representative to, to represent them in Hong Kong's legislative council. Um, and so there was elections for that, and turnout was, was massive. Uh, my wife and I, both being Hong Kong permanent residents because we've lived here for more than seven years, are actually eligible to vote. And so on Sunday, we went to uh, our polling place, and the line was ridiculously long, and we figured, you know, we're not Hong Kong citizens. Uh, it, we'll, we'll leave it to them, and we went and... Uh, found a better, a, a different use of uh, two hours of our time. But turnout was massive, It was, uh, and the results were largely uh, pro-democratic, anti-government uh, in terms of the way that people voted. Um, and so as a result, it's been uh, pretty quiet the past few weeks, the, or the past few days, I should say. Uh, haven't been a lot of protests uh, lately, really, if at all. Um, so we'll see uh, how this uh, how this turns going forward. Um, I'm afraid that uh, really anything uh, it won't take much uh, from Beijing to spark further protests. Uh, but for now, at least, we get to enjoy a little bit of uh, peace and calm. It'll be interesting to see what this uh, coming weekend brings, though. Now that these elections are behind us, and the results have been over overwhelmingly uh, in favor of the uh, pro democracy protests. So. Uh, we shall see what uh, see what happens there. Um, I'm going to start today by not really apologizing, but certainly stating that you know you you may have noticed that last week's lesson was was quite long. It was 75 minutes. Um, again, I'm not going to say I, I apologize for that, but uh, I know not everyone appreciates uh, lessons that are that uh, lengthy. Um, you know, my, my approach to these lessons is generally I will, you know, read through the assigned reading and then just simply call out and find uh, scriptures that I think are interesting and worth talking further about. Um, and sometimes as a result of that, there's more scriptures or the things that I have to say uh, tend, out, tend to be a little bit more. Uh, some, I don't really script everything. For example, today's lesson is really just these are all my notes. Um, and so sometimes as a result, I almost... Uh, spontaneously uh, go on uh, diatribes, if you will, uh, long uh, lectures that were not always uh, scripted but felt uh, right at the time. Um, and and w- one of my uh, uh, w- one of those uh, instances uh, led to a few comments last week, and I want to kind of close the close the loop on that, if I could. It was a, a lesson. Uh, or sorry, a, a discussion about um, being defenders of the faith. And I had made uh, the, the general observation that I think while we are defending the faith, we should make sure that we, uh, you know, if, if we do anything, we, we don't want to come across as <clears throat> sounding um, irrational and uh, that we believe a bunch of crazy stuff as we are trying to defend the faith. Because I believe the stuff we believe is not crazy. Obviously, that's why I believe it. It makes sense to me. That's why it resonates with my soul. That's why I believe it deeply. It's, it's become a part of me. So to me, it's not, it's not crazy. But you do have the question of how do you uh, reconcile stories that on their surface seem uh, to be inconsistent with our 
uh, experiences in the world, how do you reconcile those with our, our innate desire for rationality? And for everyone, that is a very, very personal, uh, personal struggle, um, as it should be. How do you reconcile your faith with, uh, with, with the way that the world works? And that's an important part. And I use the story of, of Noah as an example, uh, stating that you know, the details that are spelled out in the Genesis account uh, of Noah's story, uh, to me, parts of those details seem to be inconsistent with my uh, experiences in the world. Now, I, by this, I'm not saying that it's not possible that that is a true story. It's absolutely possible. I will absolutely humbly admit I have not experienced everything in the world that could possibly be experienced, and things are absolutely able, uh, capable of happening that are beyond my uh, you know, my little box of experiences or my understanding of the way the world works. I would never claim to say that I know uh, everything and, and that if there's something that I can't comprehend, then it's simply not, not possible. I would never, ever say that. So I'm not saying that the Noah story didn't happen. My point was, as we defend the faith and as we discuss our faith with others, I think when you get to issues like the Noah story... There's two possible approaches. You can either try to tell them rational explanation, or you can try to, you know, scientifically explain why it's possible that a Noah story uh, could have happened. And there are, you know, scientists that that claim to have explanations as to how it is possible that 40 days of rain could flood the entire Earth, and that uh, two animals of, of each. Uh, species were saved on an ark along with eight people being Noah and his family. Again, that's theoretically possible, although the two-store, two-animal uh, discussion isn't necessarily uh, the way it went down if you look at the language carefully, but that's neither here nor there. That's certainly the way it is portrayed. But uh, <clears throat> again, we can either try to explain that and say to everyone, look, it is possible that this story actually happened the way it's portrayed in the Bible. Or we can say, you know, I don't know if that's actually what happened, but here's what I take out of that story. Here's why that story is important to me. And so whether or not that story actually happened the way that it's recorded isn't as relevant, isn't as important to me as a religious person as the lessons that I take from it. Because at the end of the day, that is what our religion means to us. It is spiritual insights. It is lessons as to how we can draw closer to God and how we can prepare ourselves to return to him. And to me, whether or not thousands of years ago there was a massive flood that killed everyone, to me that's not really terribly important in terms of how I am supposed to lead and guide my life, how I am supposed to treat other people, how I am supposed to develop my relationship with my Savior and with my Heavenly Father. And so I hope that we can, each of us, get to the point, not, and it's not only as we defend our faith, but as we uh, understand our faith by ourselves, where we look at some of these stories, and again, if you can understand them, if you can believe them as they exactly as they are written, that's great. More, more power to you. Um, but for me, I tend to kind of put it aside and say, look, whether or not that actually happened the way that it's recorded, I honestly don't really care. It's an interesting story. But more importantly than being an interesting story and, and its historical veracity is, you know, something that I can is, consider and hear different arguments about. But at the end of the day, I'm not going to hang my testimony on whether or not this flood actually happened. Because that is the real danger, is that we, we take these stories literally, and then if something comes up, if something new is discovered, or if some argument comes along that makes us say, oh, well, maybe it is kind of a difficult story for me to, to, to actually justify. Maybe it is possible that this didn't happen. Well, if this story didn't happen, what else can I believe? Is my whole religion a fabrication? Is everything I believe and everything that I've spent my life uh, striving for, is that all just a hoax? Is it all phony? And the answer and my suggestion is no. Even if that story is not true, is not 
accurate in the way that it's detailed in Genesis, that doesn't mean that the rest of your testimony has to fall over like dominoes. Uh, you know, one story falls and the rest of it falls together. We can take these stories and put them to the side and say, I don't know. But here's the lessons that I take from these stories. And it's these lessons, that's my religion. My religion is the stories that, is, is the lessons that come from these stories, the spiritual insights that I glean that bring me closer to God and teach me how to live my life. So that was what I was trying to say. Uh, it may not have come across clearly. Hopefully this time it came across a little better, uh, but certainly appreciate uh, any feedback or any comments. Um, and, you know, it, it don't have as much an opportunity to take those concepts and apply them to a lot of what we've been studying uh, and especially the second half of the New Testament because we've been really dealing with uh, really just letters <clears throat> from uh, prophets and apostles to, to others, not really, uh, you know, fantastical stories from which we are able to gleam uh, spiritual insights. We'll get a lot more of that in the Book of Mormon, um, although, of course, the historical accuracy of the Book of Mormon uh, itself is, is a very interesting uh, subject. I'm looking forward to talking about that with you, uh, with you next year. But, uh, so we haven't had a chance to get into those as much in the New Testament, um, but just something to, to keep in mind. It's uh, kind of a way of looking at a lot of these stories, uh, a, a lot of scripture that, that's kind of been developing within my mind um, within, the past, uh, within the past few years, really. Um, and it makes sense to me, and it's kind of the framework that I go with when it comes to these stories. And so I share it with you in case it's helpful to you. If you'd rather say, no, 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 I believe the Ark story, I believe all of these stories are true as they're recorded, great. If that's the way that works for you, that's absolutely wonderful. All right. Uh, so with that over, uh, again, I hope uh, this video doesn't turn out to be super, this lesson doesn't turn out to be super long because of that. Um, let's, uh, let's, dive into, uh, let's dive into John now, because there's a lot of good stuff here. Um, the epistles of John are usually ascribed to uh, John, not John the Baptist, but John the Beloved, who is also John the Revelator. Uh, the the author of the Gospel of John, and and that's the case because there's a lot of language that overlap overlaps between the Gospel of Saint John and these epistles, and so it's even though John does not identify himself as being the author, traditionally, it's believed that he is the author of these three epistles, and the first one actually doesn't really look like an epistle; it seems to be more of a a sermon that John has given or a collection of sermons that he's given. Uh, that have been written down. The final two uh, clearly are epistles that John is writing to individuals. Um, and so with that, let's dive right into uh, John, the first epistle, general of John. We're going to go chapter 1, verses 5 and 7. This then is the message which we have heard of him, and declare unto you that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. If we, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanseth us from all sin. So I want to spend a few minutes uh, discussing and looking at other scriptures that talk about uh, this relationship between God and light, because it clearly says in verse 5 that God is light. And in him is no darkness at all, which is an interesting concept because darkness is the absence of light. Darkness itself is not a thing, if you will, but rather it's the, it's the, uh, the absence of a thing. It's what you get when you don't have light. And so uh, by saying in him there is no darkness at all, we're saying that God, it's really saying God is light. Everything about him is light. And then verse 7, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. So if we are in his light, <clears throat> then we have fellowship with others who are in the light. And we've, uh, one of the reasons that people tie John uh, to St. John is because, uh, especially John 17, that great discourse where he talks about uh, the atonement, where he talks about how we all are to come together in the same way that Christ and God, the Father, have come together and are to be one. And we're getting these same concepts here in verse 7. As we 
come to one, come to be one with Jesus Christ, as we become at one with him through the process of atonement, there's others that are also coming to him at one. And as all of those that are becoming one with Christ come together, we also become one with each other. And so we are all to come into Christ's light and to become one with him. And as we do so, we become one with another. And because of that, we have fellowship one with another. And we'll see a lot of what John spends his time talking about is loving one another. It's so essential to him. But the basis of that love is the idea that we have all come into the light of Christ and we are all in his light together. And as we come together, we enjoy that fellowship. Now let's talk uh, talk about light. Um, to start, we'll turn to John, uh, the Gospel of St. John, chapter 8, verse 12, in which Jesus said, Then spake Jesus again unto them, saying, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. So Christ is the light of the world. Without Christ, our world would be in darkness. That's an important concept to keep in mind. Now let's turn to the Doctrine and Covenants. We're going to turn to section 88, uh, where there's a lot here. Uh, 88 and 93 have a lot to say about this notion of light. Let's start in verse 6 and 7 of section 88. He that ascended up on high, as also he descended below all things, and that he comprehended all things, that he might be in all and through all things, the light of truth. Which truth shineth? This is the light of Christ. As also he is in the sun and the light of the sun and the power thereof by which it was made. Okay, so here we see that uh, Christ being he that ascended upon high and ascended below all things is, is Christ, uh, that he might be in all and through all things, the light of truth. So Christ is not only the light of the world, but he is also the light of truth. Now staying in uh, section 88, verses 11 through 13. And the light which shineth, which giveth you light, is through him who enlighteneth your eyes, which is the same light that quickeneth your understanding, which light proceedeth forth from the presence of God to fill the immensity of space, the light which is in all things, which giveth life to all things, which is the law by which all things are governed, even the power of God, who sitteth upon his throne, who is the bosom of eternity, who is in the midst of all things. All right, so here in section 88, we're really talking about how, what light is and why it is so important. And here, of course, we're talking more than just uh, you know, waves of radiance. We're, we're getting much deeper into this notion of light. God, because God is light and God is truth and truth is light. And then in these verses that we just read, 11 through 13, uh, we, get a get, we get more. Not only is light truth, it, it gives life to all things. Um, it's the law by which all things are governed and it is the power of God. So this notion of light, this idea of, of radiance, is here uh, compared to this incredible power that gives life to all things. Not only the ability to see, but actually gives, gives life. Um, and if, you know, we've I've talked endlessly, every time we talk about life within the scripture, we're talking about uh, being one. Because death, is a, is the, uh, death being the opposite of life is a separation. And so life being the opposite of a separation, being oneness. So as we have light, as we talked about in, 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 in John's epistle, as we have that light, as we are in the Savior's light, we have life in him. We come together and become one with him. And so it is that light of Christ that gives us life, that makes it possible to, to be with him. And it's the law by which all things are governed and it is the power of God, as, uh, as we read in verse 13 of section 88. So again, this light is much more than just um, a, f a, few, a few wavelengths uh, that, uh, that, that hit our eyes, but, but rather it's, it's a power of God. 
and it's our it's it's what gives us light light and the ability to come, become one with God. Now let's turn to section 93, uh, and we're going to read verses 13 through 14, as well as verses 19 and 20. And he, meaning Christ, received not the fullness at first, but continued from grace to grace until he received a fullness. And thus he was called the Son of God, because he received not the fullness at first. And it's interesting to note here that this is a, a section 93 is essentially recording what John saw, this, this very same John. And he's talking about how Christ grew and progressed and received the fullness of God. And now we compare that with verses 19 and 20 in the same section 93. I give unto you these sayings that ye may understand and know how to worship and know what you worship, that ye that you may come unto the Father in my name, and in due time receive of his fullness. For if you keep my commandments, you shall receive of his fullness, and be glorified in me, as I am in the Father. Therefore I say unto you, you shall receive grace for grace. So Christ became Christ, became the Messiah, received of the fullness of the Father, grace by grace, a little bit, at a time. And Christ is telling us that same process through which you receive grace for grace, you receive more and more truth, you receive more and more light, this gradual process. He says, I will lead you through that. I will lead you through that process. I will give of you my light. And as you walk in my light, you will grow and improve and you will become more and more like the Father. And now we turn to verses 27 and 28, also in section 93. And no man receiveth a fullness unless he keepeth his commandments. He that keepeth his commandments receiveth truth and light until he is glorified in truth and knoweth all things. So here we tie these uh, verses together. We do not start off having all the light. We have a portion of God's light in us. It's what gives us life. It's what makes us possible to come here. But in order to return to the Father, in order to partake of the fullness of his life, of his light and his truth, we are dependent upon the Savior and his light. We need the radiance that comes from him. And as we walk in his light, we ourselves begin to radiate. We ourselves become full of light. We ourselves become what he is. And we are able to prepare ourselves. We are able to gain in light. And eventually, if we continue on that path in light and truth, receiving more and more light, receiving more and more truth, we eventually will receive of the fullness of the Father as we prepare to return and to live with him. And so that's what DNC, the Doctrine and Covenants, teaches us about light. It is a power that radiates from God, uh, that describes his fullness and makes it possible for us to grow and to improve and eventually take upon ourselves the same properties of the Savior that his fullness will become our fullness uh, as we continue and grow and walk in his light. And of course, as each of us does that, we become this community of light. And, and how wonderful that is, it is as Christmas season is approaching, uh, as we think about uh, light and the church's efforts to light the world, Christ being the light of the world. And the idea that as we serve others, as we Uh, begin to reflect his light, we also light, we are the ones that light the world uh, as we give service to others, as we follow his example, as we act as true Christians, uh, we share our light with the world that others will not be walking in darkness. But of course, it is not our light that we are leading them to. It is the Savior who is the ultimate source of this light, having received his fullness from the Father. All right, verses 8 and 9. 
If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So this most basic of truth, this most basic nugget of life, of, of light, if you will, is that we all have our areas of darkness, that we all sin. And as we are striving to walk in the Savior's light, the result is that we will find areas of darkness. We, he will illuminate areas in which we need to improve. And the irony is those that will never walk in his light remain in darkness, and as a result, they, not, they cannot see their own sins. And so anyone that says, I don't have any sins, the only reason you could possibly come to that conclusion that you don't have any sins, that you don't have any mistakes, that you don't have anything that you need to repent of, and again, we're not saying that this is someone who claims they're perfect. Nobody claims to be perfect. But there's many people that say, but I don't have anything to repent of. I don't have anything that I'm sorry about. I've never, I have nothing, I've never done anything in my life that I regret. Well, anyone that would say they have no regrets certainly does not have the light of Christ in their life. Because if we have the light of Christ illuminating our life, we will all see areas in which we feel remorse, in that we regret doing. And so each of it's, it's important for each of us to consider our lives, to consider the areas in which we need to improve. And as we have more and more light coming from Christ, our mistakes, our, misen, our sins become increasingly obvious. And so if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth or the light is not in us. As we draw closer to Christ, our mistakes, our shortcomings, our darkness becomes more and more obvious, motivating us and inspiring us to improve. And in verse 10, uh, John comforts us that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins. As we come to Christ and confess our sins, he will work with us and he will help us. He will share with us his light so that we can replace those areas of darkness within us with with his light. Chapter 2, uh, verses 1 and 2. My little children, these things write I unto you, that ye sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he is the propitiation of our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Right, I love this idea. First, I, I love how John, throughout this letter, refers to those listening as uh, little children. Uh, you can, you know, very paternalistic approach um, to those who are listening to him. But you can just feel the, the love coming from John uh, as he cares for this, this little flock of his. And a lot of these letters, um, it's important to understand, uh, especially the, the, the four letters that are in the reading today, these are reaction to an apostasy that has crept into the church. I mean, we're at the very end of the New Testament now. Uh, after these, all we have left is the book of Revelation. And so, uh, you know, we are about to enter this phase of apostasy. The church is about to be taken from the earth, even though Christ has only been gone for just a few decades. Um, and so, but you can, you can see John here just uh, pleading and, and loving this flock that he is responsible for even though uh, they have, he knows there's difficult times ahead and that this gospel will not be with them for very long. Um, more importantly, as it relates to us, this idea that Christ is our advocate with the Father. Uh, and it reminds me of Doctrine and Covenants, section 45, uh, verses we've, I've, I've shared before, uh, as we talked about uh, the, uh, the book of uh, Philemon, but uh, verses 3 and 5. Uh, some, of my, uh, some of my favorite verses in Scripture. Listen to him who is the advocate with the Father, who is pleading your cause before him, saying, Father, behold the sufferings and death of him who did no sin, in whom thou wast well pleased. Behold the blood of thy Son which was shed, the blood of him who thou gavest, that thyself might be glorified. Wherefore, Father, spare these my brethren that believe on my name, that they may come unto me, and have everlasting life. I love looking at these verses, and as we see Christ advocating on our behalf 
to the Father, it's interesting to note what his argument is in these verses. He is not saying when we stand before the judgment seat, Christ's argument as our advocate, you know, think of a lawyer standing up in court about to, uh, about to plead with the judge on behalf of his client. His case will, not, will be an interesting one. His argument's going to be very interesting. He's not going to say, look at my, my son, look at this person who I'm advocating on behalf, and look what a wonderful person they are. Look at all the changes they've made. Look at all the sins they've repented of. Uh, that will not be his argument. His argument in verse 4 is saying, Behold the sufferings and death of him who did no sin, of whom thou wast well pleased. Christ stands up, and when he pleads our case, he does so by pleading his case. And so our challenge in life is not to do everything right, is not to keep all the commandments. Our challenge is to have a relationship with Christ. So that on that day, when Christ stands up, he can say, look, God, I know that Ben made a lot of mistakes. Father, I know that he's done a lot of bad things. He's got a lot of darkness in him. But I have a fullness of light. And he is within my light. And because of the light that emanates from me, that light fills his darkness. And because of me, he has no darkness. Not because he's made all the right decisions, but because he made the right decision. And that decision was to enter into covenants with me. And he's kept those covenants. And so because of that, my light shines on his darkness. And so there is no darkness in him because of the light of Christ. And that is the way that Christ serves as our advocate, as taught in section 45 of the Doctrine and Covenants. He advocates on our behalf by reminding God the Father, reminding justice, whoever it is that needs to be reminded, that he was perfect, that he has the fullness of light, and because of his fullness, our weaknesses, our shortcomings, our darkness, are made up, are no longer there, because his light is so powerful that they have all gone away. Back in John verses, uh, chapter 2, verses 3 and 5. And hereby we do know that we know him if we keep his commandments. He that saith, I know him, and keepeth not his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoso keepeth his word, in him verily is the love of God perfected. Hereby know we that we are in him. So Christ is our advocate, and even though it is impossible for us to be perfect, Christ instead allows us to come unto him and says, do what I say. Keep my commandments. And as you do so, my love becomes perfected in you. Remember every time, we've talked a number of times, this idea of perf perfection. And, and, and one way, of, of course, of looking at it is to be without mistake, to be 100% pure. But another way to look at it is the legal concept where something is done that takes, that makes it possible. We've done as much as we possibly can in order to achieve the result that we want. Again, simple example, uh, your, your bank has a mortgage on your house. And so the way that they uh, perfect their interest in your property is by uh, recording that mortgage on the title document. They've done everything that they can to secure their interest. Well, here, if we take that same notion of perfection, doing all that you can to secure your interest, and apply it to verse 5, in him verily is the love of God perfected. God's love is without mistake, but the way in which God's love takes us as far as possible is as we keep the commandments. In other words, if we don't keep the commandments, God still loves us. But that love cannot be perfected. That love cannot have the result that it potentially might have unless we keep the commandments. But as we keep the commandments, God's love, which is always there, takes us all the way. It, it has its efficacy as we keep the commandments. 
I think that's an important, powerful notion to keep in mind. We, always, we will often hear people say, well, I, it's not important to keep the commandments. I know that God loves me and God's love will save me. Well, God's love will save you, but it's not able to save you unless you do your part, unless you keep the commandments. God's love cannot have its perfecting power unless we ourselves do our part. It's not just a one-way street. We enter into covenants. Those are mutual agreements, mutual uh, arrangements that we will each do our part. God will do his part. He loves us. And Christ has atoned for us. And we will be saved by that love as long as we do our part. And our part is to keep his commandments. So as long as we keep his commandments, Christ can stand up as our advocate and say, you know, Ben hasn't done what he's supposed to. He hasn't done everything that he is supposed to. He's not perfect. But I am perfect and he has kept my commandments. He has entered into covenants. He's come unto me. And because of my perfection, I save him. I am his advocate and he is okay because of my perfection. And that's how Christ saves us through love, through grace, but only as we do our part. Otherwise, that love which is there is not able to be perfected. Verses 10 and 11. He that loveth his brother abideth in the light, and there is none occasion of stumbling in him. But he that hateth his brother is in darkness, and walketh in darkness, and knoweth not whither he goeth, because that darkness, darkness hath blinded his eyes. So again, we take this idea of light and we merge it with the love that we've just been talking about and the result is beautiful. As we grow in light, as we walk into the Savior's light, as his perfection, as his light, as his spirit illuminates our lives, the result is that we love others because we realize that others are also struggling Others also have their weaknesses and their areas of darkness. And rather than using them as a, uh, as a club to bludgeon them or, or as a way of comparing ourselves with them and feeling better about ourselves because we think we're better than them, as we gain in light and as we come closer to Christ, we have a desire to help them, to help them have that light. And so we will naturally love them. John says, and if we don't love others, then we, that's evidence that we are not in that light yet. And that's a strong statement. So we need to think about how much we love other people. As we keep the commandments, are we doing so in order to bless the lives of others? As we follow Christ, is our focus on helping others, on blessing the lives of those around us? Or do we focus more on our own prize, on our own goals, and ourselves becoming what we want to become. According to John, if we're focused on ourselves as we keep the commandments, we don't have, we're not in the light. We're not doing it the way that we're supposed to. Verses 15 to 17. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passeth away, and the lust thereof. But he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. So not only do we show evidence that we are not in the light of Christ if we don't love others, but if we focus on the things of the world, that's also evidence that we do not have uh, the love of Christ, the light of Christ shining our light. Because remember, Christ is the only source of light. And to the extent we're able to see anything in the world, it's only because his light is illuminating it. The world itself does not give light. It can be seen through his light and we can understand it through his light. But the world itself does not illuminate life, uh, does not give out light. Light only comes through Christ. And so if we are focused upon the things of the world, we have to remember that their ability to save, their ability to provide life and light is limited. Light and life only come by Jesus Christ. And all the things of the world, whether it be the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, 
these are not the things of the Father, and the world passeth away. I love that reminder. I think it's one that we often need to remind ourselves. I don't know if you can see it, but behind me is a pretty spectacular skyline. All around me right now are huge high-rises that have taken millions of dollars, billions even, to build these giant edifices that seem like they're going to last forever. But they're not. Each one of them will eventually be torn down. The world passeth away. But the light of Christ is forever. The love of God is forever. And so that's where our focus needs to be because that is the only source of light and that is the only source of salvation. Okay, turning to John chapter 3, verses 2 and 3. Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, and we shall see him as he is. And every man that hath this hope in him purifieth himself, even as he is pure. So as we come unto Christ, because of his light, we are able to see ourselves. We are able to see ourselves clearly. We are able to see our mistakes. And so as his light illuminates us, as his light makes seeing possible, and as we improve ourselves, not only do we see ourselves in that improved image, we see him. And as we learn to love others and see others as in the way that Christ sees them, we also see him. Let's turn to Moroni chapter 7 verses 4 through 8 where we see a lot of, it's actually some of the exact same language. Uh, Moroni 7 verse 48. Wherefore, my beloved brethren, pray unto the Father with all the energy of heart that ye may be filled with this love which he hath bestowed upon all who are true followers of his Son, Jesus Christ, that ye may become the sons of God, that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is, that we may have this hope, that we may be purified, even as he is pure. Again, some of the exact same language even taken uh, from, uh, from, from this epistle in John. Clearly, as Joseph Smith was translating and was receiving revelation as to uh, the best words to use to convey the ideas that were uh, recorded on the plates, clearly these, this language from John was in his mind. Um, and so as a result, the language is exactly the same. And how beautiful that is. Uh, it must show how, how powerful it is. And then it, it is this idea that as Christ illuminates us, we become like him. As we walk in his light, we ourselves become full of light. And so as we improve, we are able to see ourselves in our true nature. And as we change ourselves, the result is that we become more like him. So that when we see him, we will see him as he is. And how will he be? He will be like us because we will be like him. If we are in darkness... Not only will we not be able to see him, but would we be able to see him? We wouldn't even recognize him because we don't have that same light within us. This idea of light, you can see, just permeates really all of John's discussion. This idea that we, in order to see Christ, we ourselves have to be in his light. Only then can we truly see him as he is. Uh, chapter 3, verse 9. Whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin, for his seed remaineth in him, and he cannot sin, because he is born of God. Now, for this, I want to turn first to the Wayman translation, and then the uh, the Joseph Smith translation. Wayman says. Uh, the better translation for these verses is, for this verse, everyone who has been born of God does not continue in sin because God's seed abides in him and he is not able to sin because he has been born of God. I think that provides a little more clarity as to what exactly John is talking about. If we've been born of God, and of course the way that we do that, and John talks about 
being born of God, entering the womb again, and then, uh, you know, someone asks, can we enter the womb again and then come out? And Christ says, no, no, no. We're born of God through baptism. That's how we are born again. That's in the Gospel of John. As we are born of God, it's not that we don't sin, but we don't continue in sin. As we enter into Christ's light, our darkness is illuminated it becomes obvious, and as we grow, draw closer to Christ, we, that light of Christ removes our darkness, and we become better as we repent of our sins. So as we become born of God, it's impossible to truly be born of God and continue in sin. If we are continuing in sin, then it is obvious, then it is clear that is evidence that we have not been born of God, that we are not walking in his light. Why? Because God's seed abides in him, and he is not able to sin because he has been born of God. Christ is perfect. If we are in his light, we do not continue in darkness because we are in his light. But if we continue to sin, if we continue with our dark ways, then that is evidence that we are not fully in his light. Now, I guess we do need to kind of tap the brakes a little bit. Everyone sins. And so I don't believe what John is saying here is if you make any mistakes, it's clear your relationship with Christ is not strong enough. No, 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 that's not what he's saying. It's the desire to overcome our sins. If as you make mistakes, you feel guilty for them and you're trying, even if you're not successful, the fact that you're trying to repent, the fact that you recognize that you make mistakes and that you're trying to do better, that's what we're talking about here. And as we try to improve ourselves, We are no longer continuing in sin because we are repenting and we're trying to become better even if we're never going to become perfect in this life. And we won't. But we are at least trying. And that is what we should be doing. Now, uh, quickly compare with the Joseph Smith translation of verse 9. Whoso is born of God doth not continue in sin. So it's the same as the Wayment translation. For the Spirit of God remaineth in him. And he cannot continue in sin because he is born of God, having received that Holy Spirit of promise. So as we walk in the light of Christ, as we receive his spirit, as his spirit illuminates us, we cannot continue in sin. We cannot continue to make the same mistakes without trying to improve, without the spirit nudging us and pushing us to become better. Verse 18 My little children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. I love that. Let's do more than just say, I love you. And being married to a a Chinese wife, uh, this has been something that's been very uh, prevalent to me. Chinese culture, parents never tell their children that they love them. They just don't say it. And while I don't necessarily agree that this is the best way, the reason that they don't do it is... They say, I don't need to tell my child I love them. It's obvious by the way I care for them. It's obvious by the meals that I cook for them. It's obvious by the sacrifices that I make every single day for them that I love them. So I don't need to tell them that I love them. And again, that's certainly not my parenting approach. I'm telling my children I love them all the time to the point that they think I'm crazy and they get annoyed by it. But I think the sentiment expressed by the Chinese parents is the same as... What John is expressing, if, all we're, if the only time our family and those around us ever feel that we love them is when we say it, then we're not quite doing it right. Our words need to be coupled with actions, appropriate actions, in order to have meaning, in order to be real. And of course, that's more than just our family relationships, right? It's our, as we interact with others around us. We can't just say, I have charity towards everyone, and then we selfishly stick to ourselves. We need to show that we love others by acting uh, in that way. Verses 22 and through 24. And whatsoever we ask, we receive of him because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his light. And this is his commandment, that we should believe on the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he gave us commandment. And he that keepeth his commandments dwelleth in him, and he in him. And hereby we know that he abideth in us by the spirit which he hath given us.
So this is just an excellent uh, summary, I think, of, of, what we've just, of what we've been talking about. As we love God, we will strive to keep his commandments. As we walk into his light, we will strive to keep his commandments, and it'll be evident that we love him because of the love that we have towards others. And the Spirit will constantly push us to keep the commandments, to improve ourselves, and to show that we're keeping our commandments by loving, loving, loving others by the way that we serve them, by the way that we love them. This idea of light and love and life is really the main theme uh, of John's uh, lecture here of this sermon, and it's really hammered home in these few verses uh, quite beautifully. Chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. Hereby know ye the Spirit of God, Every spirit that confesseth that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is of God, and every spirit that confesseth not that Jesus, that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is not of God. And this is that spirit of Antichrist, whereof ye have heard that it should come, and even now already it is in the world. So it seems like here there's a little bit of a shift. And again, remember, these people are in apostasy, and or they're teetering towards apostasy. There's apostasy all around them. And John is warning them, one way you can be sure that someone is in apostasy and is not teaching the truth is because he will not teach that Christ, he will teach that Christ did not come in person. Um, and this gets back to, uh, at the time there was this idea of Gnosticism uh, that, was, that was becoming popular and it's, it's starting to permeate uh, the, the Christian uh, churches there. And the idea of Gnosticism is that everything that is spiritual is good, but everything that is material is bad. And so the way that you become better is not by uh, keeping the commandments, but by putting away all material things. And one branch within Gnosticism was called uh, 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 Desetism, uh, which, is taught, which teaches that Christ actually didn't come to earth in an actual body, but just in a semblance of a body. It was kind of a, it was a facade that Christ was here. He wasn't really here. He didn't really dwell among them. And John here is pushing directly back against that. He says that message is anti-Christ. And it's appropriate that we are reminded of this message as we begin the celebration of the Savior's birth. These lessons start December. And December is when we celebrate the fact that God Jesus Christ did come down. He did receive a body and he did dwell with us. He left his throne to come to this world, to take upon himself a body, not a space suit where he would walk around and it was a semblance of a body and he wasn't really with us. He was just kind of, we could kind of see him and uh, he, those that were around him, uh, didn't really interact with his body. They were they were interacting with a, with a hologram or what have you. I I, I don't know, don't know exactly what those who ascribed to docetism were uh, exactly what they believed. But that is what John was pushing back against, and that is not what we believe. We believe that Christ came and he had those physical experiences. And one of the reasons he had those experiences is because we will be having those experiences, and he can now relate to us. And he knows our challenges. And so that he is able to be a perfect redeemer, a savior, a comforter. So that he is able to put his, his arm on our shoulder and say, yeah, that was hard, wasn't it? I know. I've been there. I've suffered something similar myself. And I got through it. And because I got through it, I know you can get through it as well. So for us, it is critically important to our understanding of Jesus Christ and his atonement to realize that he came down and actually took upon himself a body of flesh and bone. And while he was in that body, he suffered. He went through what we went through, and he went through more than what we are going to ever go through. And eventually giving up his life, suffering more than any of us, it's possible to suffer. And he did that because he loves us. And, it's this, and at Christmas season, that is what we are celebrating, is that he loves us so much that he left his high throne and came down to this world to suffer. 
to bleed and to die, to experience hunger and fatigue and thirst, disappointment and heartbreak, all of those emotions that make life so difficult for us sometimes. He's been there, he's experienced those because he came and he dwelled with us. And that is what Christmas is about. And that is what we are celebrating. And that is what John is emphasizing to the saints here. That this is true. And John would know he was there. He was an eyewitness. That's why it's so powerful to have this message coming from John. He saw these things firsthand. He knows that Christ took upon himself a body. He knows that Christ suffers, suffered. He was there. He saw it. Okay, and then we compare uh, these notions to, to, let's go back to DNC um, 88 to, to further this idea of the importance of the body. Um, and this is right after our discussion, if, if you remember, of the importance of God being light, of comparing uh, that light proceedeth forth from the presence of God to fill the immensity of space. The very verses after this in, verses, uh, in section 88, verses 14 through 16, Now verily I say unto you that through the redemption which is made for you is brought to pass the resurrection from the dead. And the spirit and the body are the soul of man and the resurrection from the dead is the redemption of the soul. So here these verses push directly against this idea of Gnosticism. This idea that matter is bad but spirit is good. That's not what we believe. We believe Spirit is good and matter is good. And it's only as those two are combined that we can be saved. And that is why Christ did not just leave his body to rot in the earth. He came back and saved his body. That matter that he took upon himself when he was born in a manger. That stayed with him his whole life. And after he died, he came back and saved his body. Because there is something essential to our salvation that comes from the physical. And it is not, the physical is not something we can just put to the side that we can throw away and say, I'm only going to focus on the spiritual. The two have to go together. You cannot progress spiritually if you are neglecting physical things. The two have to go together because the body and the spirit together form the soul. And God's purpose is to save souls. Not just our spirits, but our bodies also. That's why he was resurrected. Verses, uh, John 4, verses 7 through 11. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. And this was manifested, the love of God towards us, because that God sent his only begotten Son into the world that we might live through him. Herein is love, Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. I think this beautifully sums up what we've talked about so far. God loves us so much, he sent his son. Christ was willing to leave his throne and take upon himself the physical body to endure the physical challenges of life and to eventually save us, not saving only our spirits, but our bodies also through the power of the resurrection, making it possible for our souls, our body and our spirits together to become perfected, to return to the presence of God and to progress eternally to become like him because our progression without our body is limited. So God's plan has to include saving both parts of us, the spiritual and the physical, because only those two together can return to his presence. And this is evidence of God's love. This proves once and for all how much God loves us, how much Christ loves us, that he is willing and able to save us. And if Christ loves each and every one of us so much, well, we better love others as well. Because Christ died and was resurrected, not just for us, but for everyone for each and every one of us. And so if God loves everyone in the world enough that he would send his son to save them, that Christ himself would come down, then it is our obligation to love others in that same way, to be full of that love. And if we don't have that love within us, then as Moroni thought, we need to pray for that love. 
because we need that love. Because if we don't have it, that's evidence that we are not yet in the light of Christ. And if we are not in the light of Christ, then chances are there are a number of sins that we have not seen yet. There are a number of areas that we do not know that we need to improve. Because only as we are in Christ's light will our mistakes, our weaknesses, our darknesses be illuminated so that we can improve, so that we can repent and prepare ourselves to return to live with God. 18 through 21. Therefore, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casteth out fear, because fear hath torment. He that feareth is not made perfect in love. We love him because he first loved us. If a man say, I love God and hateth his brother, he is a liar. For he that loveth not his brother whom he hath seen, how can he love God whom he hath not seen? And this commandment have I have we from him, that he who loveth God love his brother also. So as we enter into the light, we are going to see areas where we need to improve. And that can be scary. That can be fear-inducing. But we move forward with faith, knowing that God loves us, and we improve ourselves. And as we improve ourselves, part of that improvement is that we help, we want, we desire to help others improve. And so that perfect love casteth out fear. And so we desire to help others improve. And that is the evidence that the love of God is in us, that we love others. Uh, chapter 5, uh, we'll quickly, verses 7 through 8. For there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost. And these three are one. And there are three that bear witness in earth, the Spirit and the water and the blood. And these three agree in one. We'll quickly turn, uh, cross-reference a scripture in Moses, chapter 6, verses 59 and 60. That by reason of transgression cometh the fall, which fall bringeth death. And inasmuch as ye were born into the world by water and blood and the Spirit, which I have made, and so become the dust of a living soul, even so ye must be born again into the kingdom of heaven, of water and of the Spirit, and be cleansed by blood, even the blood of mine only begotten, that ye might be sanctified from all sin, and enjoy the words of eternal life in this world, and eternal life in the world to come, even immortal glory. For by the water ye keep the commandment, by the Spirit ye are justified, and by the blood ye are sanctified." This idea that water, blood, and spirit, these three things uh, are there to perfect us, to help us to grow and improve. They were there when we were born. They were there when we were baptized, as uh, in the book of Moses here, as was taught to Adam and Eve in the verses that we were just read. And it is by the water that ye keep the commandment by being baptized, by the Spirit, ye are justified. It's the Spirit that continues to push us to become better, as we talked about, that nudges us to love others and to keep the commandments. But eventually, in verse 60, by the blood, ye are sanctified. It is through the blood of Jesus Christ that we become pure. But these three things all have to be present and all work together. This idea of keeping the commandments, of being justified, and becoming sanctified, all are critical in order for us to progress towards salvation. Now, that's all I want to cover in John. Very quickly, um, so I'm skipping the two, uh, epistle two and three. Very, very quickly, Jude uh, is short for Judah or Judas, who is a, uh, who is in the introduction, or sorry, in verse uh, one of Jude, states that he is the brother of James. And if you recall, James is the half-brother of the Savior. So James is brother would also be the Savior's half-brother. So Jude, or Judah, is also the half-brother of Christ. And his epistle is very short. He doesn't write very much. Um, but verses 21 and 23 of uh, Jude are an appropriate way to end our lesson today. Keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. And of some have compassion, making a difference, and others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garments spotted by the flesh. So to tie that in with what we've been speaking about with John, what we've been learning about with John, 
as we come into Christ's light, we desire for others to come into that light also. But different people react differently to that light. Some, uh, some we have to have compassion. We have to, we have to move with love. We have to demonstrate our love for them in order to get them to come into the light. And then verse 23, others, it seems like we got to scare them. Uh, we got to preach, uh, take, take a little harsher approach. Uh, but what I take away from this is that as we love others, the Spirit will tell us how we can show forth that love, the things that we can do to help them to improve, to help others to come into the light. Because as disciples of Christ, as those who are in the light of Christ, our greatest desire should be for all others to partake of that same light, to enjoy that same light, which illuminates our lives, which provides us truth, which provides us life, which governs all things, which illuminates our shortcomings and our darknesses, telling us how we can become better, telling us what areas we need to improve in order to become more like our Savior, so that when we see him, we will see him as he is, and we will be like him, making us worthy for our advocate, Jesus Christ, to lead us back to the presence of the Father. And I pray that we will each have the Savior, the light of the Savior within us, and do so in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.